This is host Raymond Posh. No new episodes are being added under our spiritual life, but all 108 episodes will remain accessible. My new episodes are all being published under my New Ways of Being podcast. You can learn about me and new ways of being at RaymondPosh.com. Welcome to the Spirituality Beckoning Podcast, in which we discuss spirituality, life, and oneness. Spirituality is beckoning, that is, calling to all human beings to go within and awaken to the oneness of spirit, humanity, and all of life. I'm Raymond Posh, a longtime spiritual explorer, and I want to share my personal stories, insights, and guidance that can help you experience life more consciously and joyfully. My podcast is for people who are spiritual but not religious, who want to be empowered and inspired, and who want to make the world a better place. As a life coach, I also help people build their dreams so they can live the life they love. Check out my coaching programs and sign up for a free Life Vision webinar at LiveYourSuccess.com. I am Raymond Posh, and I want you to be more empowered and more inspired. My show today is about the book, The Essential Path by Neil Donald Walsh. And today I want to read to you chapters 1 through 9, which cover humanity's biggest problem and its cause. In the next show on October 5th, I will cover the solution to humanity's biggest problem. And beginning with this show, I will be talking often about the ever-increasing need for people everywhere to awaken and evolve more rapidly, both as individuals and collectively as a species. Now is the time to start living from your spiritual, infinite side and to be fully empowered and inspired to make a difference. Chapter 1, The Proposition. We're one decision away from a solution to humanity's biggest problem. This is a decision so powerful in its impact that it would solve not only our species' biggest collective problem, but the largest problem faced by every individual reading this right now. But be warned, this decision may not be what it seems, and it definitely will not fall in line with what is most widely expected or most generally accepted. That makes it a daring decision, perhaps the most significant decision of your life. And don't think you didn't know that when you started reading here or listening here. You knew exactly what you were doing. 
and why. Nobody has to tell us that life on our planet is not what we had hoped it would be. All we have to do is take a look at what's happening every day around the world, and in some cases, in our own lives. There are very few among us who have not found ourselves shaking our heads in discouraged dismay at the latest tweet or online news bulletin or newspaper headline. And sometimes, too many times, perhaps, at the challenges confronted in our home. This leads to a compelling question. Is it possible, just possible, that there's something we don't fully understand about ourselves, about life, and about God, the understanding of which would change everything? To me, the answer is obvious. Is it to you? If your answer is yes, you're invited to now undertake a very quick but deeply revealing explanation of everything, why things are the way they are on earth today, when our biggest problem arose, what has blocked us from the obvious solution, and how we can dissolve the problem virtually overnight. We begin with some additional compelling questions. Chapter 2, The Questions What if the most wonderful ideas you ever had about life were true? What if the most wonderful ideas you ever had about yourself were true? What if the most wonderful ideas you ever had about God were true? What if the most wonderful ideas you ever had about what happens after you die were true? What would then be true for you? Do you think there would be any difference between how you might then experience life and how you now experience life? Your answers to these questions are now setting the course and direction of your experience on earth. Did you know that? Not to be overly dramatic about it, but it's true. They are determining the path you will take. And humanity's collective answers to those questions are now creating the future of our species by determining the path we will all take. Will it be the path that our species has taken for thousands of years? The one that got us here, where our lives and the world are today? Is this where we want to be? Is this our most wonderful idea about life, about ourselves, about God? Ideas are important. It is ideas that create beliefs, beliefs that create behaviors, behaviors that create experience, and experience that creates reality. And if our most wonderful ideas become our beliefs, life on our planet will look much different than it does today. Cognitive scientists tell us that all it takes is one in ten people to emphatically embrace an idea, and the mass will follow. What then could cause just one in ten people to believe that the most wonderful ideas we ever had are true? A single decision. We're one decision away. Really. But we must 
make that decision now. Not doing so is starting to have on all of us a very real effect. Chapter 3, The Effect. Let's not dance around this. We have a big problem here. On earth, I mean. And it's touching our lives every day, individually and collectively. There's no reason to move into a dark or depressed state over this, though, because the solution really is just one decision away. And it's not even a difficult decision to make. We just have to choose to make it. Many people agree with the decision intuitively already. They simply haven't implemented it in their lives as a practical matter probably because they're waiting to see if anyone else agrees. But the time for waiting is over. The problem now confronting us is becoming pervasive. It's evidenced not only in the world's governments and the world's corporations and the world's social and religious institutions. It's affecting all of us in individual homes all across the planet. We're feeling the effect. So what's up? What's the problem? Let's lay it out in direct terms. Humanity's biggest problem is that humanity doesn't know what humanity's biggest problem is. We can see the effect of this problem all around us, but we don't seem to see the cause. Now, you have a real problem when you know you have a problem, but you don't understand what the problem is. You don't know what's causing the effect that you're observing every day. And humanity's confusion about this has gone on for so long that it's now created a condition, a condition that's threatening to become permanent. Here's one way that it shows up. Perhaps more than ever in recent times, we hear folks saying, uh, say that if we do have a problem right now, it's only because of those others who are creating problems. We didn't have these problems before, these folks say, and we want to go back to the good old days. And just who exactly are those others to whom these folks are referring? It's those unwanted immigrants, those unsatisfied minorities, those unhappy women, those right-wing radicals, those left-wing nutjobs, those unacceptable gays, those uninformed students, those dumb conservatives, those empty-headed liberals, those unmotivated government assistant recipients. It's those others who just keep making things difficult. A well-known political strategist in the United States, Brad Todd, crystallized all of this in a tweet he posted in mid-2018. Is the American left willing to live with and among them the American right? Or are we at culture rupture? And the phenomenon is not limited to the United States, but is emerging all over the world. Newspaper columnist Paul Krugman put it this way in an opinion piece in the New York Times, written about the same time. 
The real crisis is an upsurge in hatred, unreasoning hatred that bears no relationship to anything the victims have done. I resonate with the urgency of Mr. Todd's questions, and I concur with Mr. Krugman's observations. Suddenly, it feels as if we live in a world of us versus them. People around the globe are lining up on one side or the other, and the middle ground seems to be disappearing. Not everyone may feel this way, but everyone can feel everyone who feels this way. So it's affecting all of us. Each day it's producing distressing headlines, angry blogs, name-calling speeches, childish rants in tweets, bullying diatribes, finger-pointing tirades, and violence-laden outbursts. And while we may not know what the underlying cause of the problem human society is now facing, the cumulative impact of that problem can be put into a single word, alienation. We are seeing it more and more. It is an outgrowth of a very contentious and unhappy situation. Chapter 4, The Situation Alienation inevitably arises in the aftermath of ongoing citizen frustration. Citizen frustration inevitably arises in the aftermath of ongoing societal dysfunction. Societal dysfunction inevitably arises in the aftermath of ongoing systemic failure. And that's exactly what we've had here. Long-term, ongoing, systemic failure. We've put into place on our planet a wide assortment of systems created to make life better for all of us. Those systems are not working. There are some rare exceptions, but in the main, most are failing to produce the outcomes they were intended to produce. Wait, it's worse. They're actually producing the opposite. Our political systems, created to produce safety and security for the world's nations and their people, have in the main produced far too much of exactly the opposite. Ongoing disagreements, endless insulting and demonizing of opponents, dangerous trade wars, nerve-wracking military threats, and escalating violence between people at every level. Our economic systems, created to produce opportunity and sufficiency for all, have in the main produced far too much of exactly the opposite. Massive economic inequality and increasing poverty, with a handful of people, actually fewer than 10, holding more wealth and resources than 3.5 billion, that's half the planet's population, combined. Our social systems, created to advance and facilitate the joy of living in community, and build a foundation for harmony among a divergent population, have in the main produced far too much of exactly the opposite. Discordance, disparity, prejudice, and despair. 
with limited opportunity for upward mobility and in far too many cases rampant injustice producing exasperation and outrage. Even our vaunted online internet systems created as the newest innovation of our social systems and originally designed to bring us closer together through the marvel of social media have in the main produced far too much of exactly the opposite, a playing of one against another through the manipulation of emotions, a heightening of our differences, an exacerbation of our fears, and a poisoning of our minds with negativity, all of which has not brought us closer together, but driven us further apart. And saddest of all, our spiritual systems created to inspire a greater love of God and so of each other have in the main produced far too much of exactly the opposite, bitter righteousness, shocking intolerance, widespread anger, deep-seated hatred, and self-justified violence. Now, you may think that I have exaggerated the impact of all this. Things are better here on earth now than ever before, right? Well, I suppose that's true for some. But do you know that on this day, over 1.7 billion people will have no access to clean water? Do you know that 1.6 billion people will live without electricity? Do you know that, difficult as it may be to believe, 2.5 billion people, over a quarter of this planet's population, will not have toilets to use in this, the first quarter of the 21st century? These are more than simple inconveniences. The health hazards caused by such conditions lead to thousands of unnecessary deaths each year. And speaking of unnecessary deaths, consider this statistic. More than 650 children die of starvation every hour on this planet. Every hour. Starvation. Really? While we throw away more food in restaurants from Tokyo to Paris to Los Angeles each evening, than would be needed to feed the children of an entire outlying third-world village for a week? Even a quick overview of such numbers, even the most dispassionate glance, surely provides dismaying evidence of our absolute, complete, and utter failure to grasp, much less activate, the simplest and most basic answers to the simplest and most basic questions that members of any sentient species would, one would think, sooner or later have to ask. Who are we? Who do we choose to be as a species? What gives here? What's going on with the human race that it cannot see itself even as it looks at itself. Where is humanity's blind spot? What is the reason for all this? 
Chapter 5, The Reason Sooner or later, every thinking person comes around again to this question. Is it possible, just possible, that there is something we don't fully understand about ourselves, about life, and yes, about God, the understanding of which would change everything? It's time to ask that question everywhere. In the pews of our houses of worship, in the halls of our lawmaking bodies, in the boardrooms of our global corporations, in the back rooms of our small businesses, in the town squares of our cities, in the dining rooms of our friends, and in the homes of our families. I'm going to invite you to memorize that question and ask it wherever you go, wherever good conversation and meaningful exchange and serious problem-solving is taking place. Ask the question. Then, as the question hangs in the air, explain why the answer is obviously yes. We are a very young species. A lot of people think, uh, like to think of humans as highly evolved. In fact, humanity has just emerged from its infancy on this planet. In their book, New World, New Mind, Robert Ornstein and Paul Ehrlich place this in perspective in one mind-boggling paragraph. Suppose Earth's history were charted on a single year's calendar, with midnight January 1 representing the origin of the Earth and midnight December 31 the present. Then each day of Earth's year would represent 12 million years of actual history. On that scale, the first form of life, a simple bacterium, would arise sometime in February. More complex life forms, however, come much later. The first fishes appear around November 20. The dinosaurs arrive around December 10 and disappear on Christmas Day. The first of our ancestors, recognizable as human, would not show up until the afternoon of December 31. Homo sapiens, our species, would emerge at around 11.45 p.m. And all that has happened in recorded history would occur in the final minute of the year. End quote. I consider that to be a brilliant piece of writing. In just 125 words, these two gentlemen have turned a huge piece of information into bite-sized data that we can get our head around. Then, more easily, understand why we are continuing to act the way we do and have not yet, as the global species, made the daring decision. Our youth as a species doesn't justify our actions, but it helps us to see the nature of the challenge. We simply have to grow up. We have to stop acting like children among species. And we have to do it now. 
today, not in 10 or 20 years, now, right now. We have to stop the saber rattling. The my missile is bigger than yours, flexing of military muscles between nations that could easily lead on a moment's notice to the deaths of hundreds of thousands and the decimation of nations. We have to stop the disaster ignoring uh, the kind of look-the-other-way apathy that results in those statistics of the billions suffering even today on our planet due to problems we could easily solve. We have to stop the hypocrisy, the kind of say one thing and do another behavior that allows us to deliberately kill people under the authority of the state in order to teach people that deliberately killing people is not okay. That allows us to place our children in front of video games and television programs and movies that depict violence, violence, and more violence, even as we talk of raising a generation that we hope will not think of violence as a first resort in conflict resolution and will, in fact, actually renounce it. We have to stop the kind of ignore what's good for us habits that allow us to consume unhealthy food, habitually inhale carcinogens, and irresponsibly drink harmful amounts of brain-frying and liver-damaging liquids, all the while preaching wholesome living. We have to stop archaic thinking, the kind of stuck-in-yesteryear approach to life that keeps us trapped in an ancient story of civilization that motivates each of us to seek first to meet our individual needs, each of us to serve our individual agenda, and each of us to cater to our individual desires, even if it means doing so at the expense of others, who we see as not part of us. We have to stop, just stop, behaving the way we have been, and call forth from within us a new way to be human, a way that allows us to embrace singularity without creating separation, to express differences without producing divisions, and to experience contrasts without generating conflicts. And all of this is possible but it will require us to do something very brave. We will have to go against the grain to adopt a way of life that only a handful have embraced throughout human history. We have to ask when we confront and witness our own behaviors, what are we choosing and why are we choosing this? Then we have to ask, why not choose God? And we have to understand what we mean when we invite ourselves to choose God. We have to be clear that the question we are asking is, why not choose God to be experienced as a part of us and as that of which all beings and all aspects of life are comprised? The great irony is that the tiny handful who have taken this path who have embraced this way of life, 
are the very humans we say we honor the most, even as we have declined to adopt their way of life ourselves. So what we honor in others, we have dismissed as being irrelevant to ourselves. Or perhaps it is relevant to ourselves, we say, but is virtually impossible for us to experience. This, despite the fact that humans who have done so have told us exactly how we may do so also. Now, to be fair to humankind, we have certainly undertaken efforts to find an answer to our problems, many efforts. The difficulty is not that we haven't tried. The difficulty is how we've tried. There is no fault to be found in our intention. The error lies in the manner in which we have made our attempts. Chapter 6, The Attempts For a very long time, we have been taking a dead-end street in our attempts to address humanity's problems. We're continuing to do so to this very day. To put it in a sentence, we keep trying to solve humanity's problems at every level except the level at which the problems exist. This is because, as noted at the outset, we are not clear about the cause of the problems. So, we try first to solve our problems as if they were political problems. Because we're used to using political pressure on this planet to get people to do what they don't seem to want to do. We hold discussions, we write laws, we pass legislation and adopt resolutions in every local, national, regional, and global language and assembly we can think of to try to legislate morality. We think we can solve the problem with words, but it doesn't work. Whatever short-term solutions we may create evaporate very quickly and the problems re-emerge. They will not go away. So we say, okay, these are not political problems and they cannot be solved with political means. They must be economic problems. And because we are used to using economic power to, on this planet to get people to do what they don't seem to want to do, we then try to buy morality. We think we can solve the problems with money. We throw money at the problem or withhold money from them, as in the form of sanctions, seeking to solve the problems with cash flow manipulations. But it doesn't work. Whatever short-term solutions we may create evaporate very quickly, and the problems reemerge. They will not go away. So we say, okay, these are not economic problems and they cannot be solved by economic means. They must be military problems. And because we are used to using military might on this planet to get people to do what they don't seem to want to do, we then try to force morality. We think we can solve the problems with weapons. We threaten if we do not actually decide to shoot missiles at them and drop bombs on them, but it doesn't work. 
whatever short-term solutions we may create evaporate very quickly. And the problems reemerge. They will not go away. So having run out of solutions, we declare, these are not easy problems. No one expected that they could be fixed overnight. This is going to be a long, hard slog. Many lives may be lost in trying to solve these problems, but we are not going to give up. We are going to solve these problems if it kills us. And we don't seem, <laughs> we, we don't even see the irony in our own statements. After a while, however, even primitive beings of very little consciousness become tired of all the killing in battle and all the suffering and dying of women and men, children and elderly from the ravaging effects of ongoing conflict. And so, after enough of these tragic consequences have arisen with no solution in sight, we say it is time to call a truce and hold peace talks. And the cycle begins again. We're back to the bargaining table, back to politicking as a solution. And peace talks often include discussion of reparations, the end of sanctions, and assistance in economic recovery. And so we're back to manipulating money as a solution. And when these solutions fail to work in the long run, we're back to threats and the actual use of weapons again. And on and on and on it goes. And on and on it has gone throughout human history. The names of the principal actors and the types of weapons have changed, but the script has not. This is, of course, the classic definition of insanity. Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to get a different result. Only primitive cultures and primitive beings do this. Yet we can't seem to or simply won't change our ways because we are very used to trying to force solutions in our world. Yet solutions that are forced are never solutions at all. They are simply postponements. The great tragedy and the great sadness of humanity is that we are forever willing to settle for postponements in place of solutions. Highly evolved beings would never, ever settle for postponement after postponement in solving their biggest problems. It is difficult to believe that it was in 1879, in his last public address, that Victor Hugo prophesied, in the 20th century, war will be dead, hatred will be dead, frontier boundaries will be dead, dogmas will be dead. The Wikipedia entry of this, uh, on this revered French poet, novelist, and dramatist tells us that, quote, throughout his life, Hugo kept believing in unstoppable humanistic progress, end quote. I would add here that what he clearly didn't imagine was that humans would take so long to gather the courage to face the largest problem of our species head-on. We've done an endless dance around it, with the result that we continue century after century to try to solve the world's problem at every level except the level 
at which the problem exists. We've been doing the same thing in our personal lives. Uh, First, we try to solve our individual problems by talking and bargaining and politicking our way out of them. Nobody has to tell us about office politics. And yet, yes, there are even politics in our own families and our own homes. If that doesn't work, we throw money at them or we withhold money from them, spending wildly to try to buy our way to happiness or imposing strict household budgets to try to economize our way there. If that doesn't work, we use force. Yelling, banging of fists on tables, slamming of doors, domineering discussions, ugly ultimatums, and then the ultimate personal power play, tearing up agreements, breaking promises, dissolving business partnerships, walking away from relationships, and ending marriages, all hopefully but not inevitably without physical violence. Does it seem like it's time to take our blindfolds off and see the circumstance for what it is? The problem facing humanity today is not a political problem. It is not an economic problem. And it is not a military problem. The problem facing humanity today is a spiritual problem. And it can only be solved by spiritual means. We must, as a civilization, begin to examine our most sacred beliefs. Chapter 7, The Beliefs. Belief is, in many ways, just a shorter word for spirituality. It's a more friendly word, a less threatening or confronting word, but it refers to the same thing. What we hold dear what we hold to be our most sacred truths. Beliefs are tricky. They can support you or they can defeat you as an individual and as a collective. Currently on planet Earth, billions of people, let's call them Group One, believe that our existence continues after this present physical experience as non-physical entities living eternally. They also believe that how our existence continues, whether as an experience of wondrous joy or an experience of agony, depends on what we do or do not do, believe or do not believe, while on earth. In their view, we've simply found ourselves here having had nothing to do with our arrival but having everything to do with to do now with what happens after our departure these beliefs are with minor variations the underpinnings of most of the world's major religions many other people group 2 do not believe that we exist eternally they believe that their life is a biological incident the result of certain and particular chemical interactions of others, and that life ends with the termination of their own chemical interactions. They believe that at the time of what is called death, they simply cease to be. 
And still others, group three, believe that we existed before this present physical life and that we will indeed exist after this life with our self-consciousness and self-awareness and our sense of a, very, of a particular identity very much intact. They also believe that we are each aspects of the essential essence of the universe, which some people call divinity, that this is our true nature, and that therefore the quality or environment of our eternal existence has nothing to do with reward or punishment. The afterlife will never be one filled with agony, these people say, but simply with quiet joy, inner bliss, and the peaceful and serene knowing of who and what we really are, followed by the ever-expanding expression and experience of this through an ongoing series of physicalizations that are commonly called reincarnations. This group believes that we did not simply find ourselves here on earth, having had nothing to do with our arrival, but came here quite on purpose, manifesting in physicality with a particular and specific intent that is identical for all of us, the continued evolution of soul, but singularly experienced in each of us according to our individuated modes of expression, even as musicians might play the same composition in entirely different ways. Whichever group one belongs to, far too many humans, when considering their beliefs, will neither concede nor even acknowledge the possibility that what they believe may not be totally true and could even be completely mistaken. Their beliefs about God, about life, are, they assert, indisputable, irrefutable, and incontestable. These are, they would say, their most wonderful ideas about all of this. Now, none of this would matter a great deal if we all kept our most sacred beliefs to ourselves, not letting them seep into our and affect our collective exterior experience. Yet what would be the point of holding beliefs to be sacred if we have no intention of living them in our daily lives and inserting them into our daily experience? We see then how many of humanity's spiritual beliefs, including the non-belief in God and spirituality, spill over into our politics, our economics, and our social constructions of every kind. The problem isn't that we carry our most sacred beliefs into the marketplace of ideas. The problem is what those sacred beliefs are, and the fact that our thoughts about how those viewpoints and understandings should apply in areas of civil law, politics, economics, and social constructions also become hardened, indisputable, irrefutable, and incontestable. It is both the possible inaccuracy of some of our beliefs and our absolute intransigence as we express them in our public and collective encounters that is producing alienation. 
in our streets, in our public meetings, in our online postings, in our legislative assemblies, in our homes. I'm going to capitalize the word alienation throughout the rest of this discussion because it is the central, major, and most negatively impacting, civilization-threatening, social contract-dismantling challenge of our time. Humans of goodwill everywhere today are begging to know, is any of this improvable, correctable, changeable? Are we in a slide down a slippery slope that cannot be stopped? The answer to the first question is yes. The answer to the second question is no. But if we want the slide to stop, we're going to have to refuse to continue our continual refusal. Chapter 8, The Refusal. As noted earlier, our most important beliefs are the beliefs we live by, base our decisions on, rationalize our choices with. They are the lens through which we look, and they determine to a huge extent what we see. We tend to see what we put there before we looked. The most sacred of those beliefs for most people are the thoughts and understandings, convictions, and notions that have been embraced and embedded deeply within them regarding what is true about life, about our relationship to each other, and about how life itself functions, about who we are and our reason and purpose for being here, about God, including the belief that there is no God, and about the ultimate goal of the whole experience we are undergoing on earth. These particular beliefs are critical because they fuel the engine of our lives, both collectively and individually. Given how significant the beliefs are, one would think that people would examine them often, if only to see if their beliefs still feel valid and true. Yet most people do not. In fact, the majority of people do exactly the opposite. They don't closely examine their most dearly held beliefs at all, ever. Why do so many people refuse to acknowledge that their beliefs could contain even the slightest error, or that it might be time to change them because times themselves have changed? What is this reluctance about? It is about where those beliefs come from. For most people, that would be those who raised them. Then their extended family, their tribe, their clan, their race, their teachers, models, and elders. Finally, their given religion and their acquired philosophy, their adopted politics, and their individual history. And because these are such significant and personally meaningful sources, much of humanity has found itself stuck in a most unusual place. This is not a place where we find ourselves stuck in any other area of our collective lives. Not in science, not in technology, not in medicine. Only with regard to our most sacred and important beliefs. In every other important area of human endeavor, there is something we have been willing to do that has made those endeavors productive, fruitful, 
and enormously beneficial. Yet in one area, ironically the most important area of our lives, our beliefs, we have staunchly refused to do it. Our willingness to do it in science has resulted in extraordinary discoveries. Our willingness to do it in medicine has resulted in breathtaking advances. Our willingness to do it in technology has resulted in astonishing inventions. And what is it that we have done in every other area of our lives that we have adamantly refused to do in the one area that is most important, our beliefs? Question the prior assumption. In science, the very reason we have been able to discover something that we did not understand before is that the moment we think we have found an answer, we have been willing to question the prior assumption. In medicine, the very reason we have been able to come up with a new cure or a miraculous new procedure is that the moment we think we have found an answer, we have been willing to question the prior assumption. In technology, the very reason we've been able to imagine or conceive of a new tool or a new device is that the moment we think we have found an answer, we have been willing to question the prior assumption. In all of these areas, we have held nothing that we thought we knew to be so sacred that it cannot even be questioned. It may take us time, we may do it with some reluctance, yet sooner or later breakthroughs occur because we have finally questioned the prior assumption. But not so in the area of our most sacred beliefs. In that area, we are going to hold on to the original idea and the first version of things no matter what. This is what we have been told. This is what we know. And this is how it is, we say. Now, if we did this in medicine, we would be attempting brain surgery today using a very sharp stick. If we did this in technology, we would be trying to launch a communication satellite using a stack of dynamite. If we did this in science, we would be seeking to unravel the mysteries of the universe using an abacus. We need now to do with our beliefs what we have done in every other important area of human endeavor. We need to stop trying to solve modern problems with ancient tools. A very wise teacher once said to me, who would you have to make wrong in order to get things right? As long as you need to continue to make your sources right, you may never be able to right a wrong in your world. We must give ourselves permission to raise questions about our most sacred beliefs regarding life and even regarding God. We must be willing to question authority, indeed to question the highest authority. We must be willing to make the daring decision to choose God in a brand new way, in a way we may never have done before, or not to, and most courageous of all, to question what we assume we know about God. So the issue before mankind now is, do we have the courage to do so?
Are we brave enough to consider the possibility that it is our prior assumption about the entire human encounter that has created the daily struggles and the mounting stress that is so real a part of life on earth for billions today? Chapter 9, The Assumption. The biggest and most damaging assumption about life that most of humanity has refused to question is the assumption of separation. There's a fascinating story that I will share with you in just a bit about how we may have come to that assumption in the first place. But right now, let's explore the most powerful impact in our daily lives of that assumption. It is found in humanity's most prevalent idea about what some people call God. The assumption is impactful because most people who believe in God, and that is, incidentally, by far the largest number of people on this planet, so this is not unimportant, embrace what could be called a separation theology. This is a way of looking at God that says that God is up there and we are down here and never the twain shall meet except on Judgment Day when we'll find out whether our behavior has been sufficiently passable to allow us to return to heaven. The fact that billions of people hold some version of this idea to be true would perhaps not matter too much if it began and ended there. But the challenge with a separation theology is that it produces too often in too many people a separation cosmology. That is, a way at looking at all of life that says that everything is separate from everything else. This wouldn't be so bad if it were just a point of view. But the challenge with the separation cosmology is that it produces too often in too many people a separation psychology. That is, a psychological viewpoint that says, I am over here and you are over there and we each have our separate needs and requirements and our, our separate desires and therefore our separate agendas. This would also be something we could live with if that was all there was to it. But the challenge with a separation psychology is that it produces too often in too many people a separation sociology that is a way of socializing with each other that encourages everyone within human society to join together in separate groups, cultures, nations, religions, political parties, families, and organizations, each serving their own separate interests. Now we encounter something that we can't live with. Because a separation sociology inevitably produces too often in too many people a separation pathology. That is, pathological behaviors of self-destruction engaged in individually, collectively, and producing suffering, conflict, violence, and death evidenced everywhere on our planet throughout human history. The idea that everything is separate 
from everything else is the biggest reason that the world is the way it is today and the greatest obstacle to the rapid expansion of human potential. Our story of separation is as old as humanity itself. It is fascinating to look at one way it could have become a staple of our culture by imagining what I call a very possible story. Thank you for listening. Check out my website at liveyoursuccess.com. Have a great day and a great life. Thank you, fellow spiritual explorers, for listening to this podcast. I send you my love because together we can grow, awaken, and make a positive difference in the world. Please subscribe to the Spirituality Beckoning Podcast. Also check out my website at spiritualitybeckoning.com where I post the audio, transcript, and show notes for, for each episode. May you open yourself to life, grow as a person, and experience many blessings.